Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to all of you who are here with us in person. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online. We're so delighted you could be here this evening with us for this very important conversation about what's happening in Israel. For those who don't know me, I think most of you do, I'm Rabbi Lori Kaufman, Director of Content and Innovation here at Park Avenue Synagogue, and I'm delighted to talk to Rabbi Zuckerman and Cantor Schwartz about their recent trips to Israel. So let's not waste any time, let's get right to it. Um, I'm going to ask both of you to start with just talking about the arc of your journey, the itinerary, just briefly give a summary of where you were, and then we'll go into the specific stories more deeply. Rabbi Zuckerman? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, important conversation, Cantor Schwartz. I'm glad that you were able to join us uh, and uh, talk about your your journey. Uh, I traveled with uh, the Fuchsburg Jerusalem Center, which is sort of the home of conservative Judaism, not to be confused with Masorti, but it's really a North American institution that serves both Israelis and Americans who are in Israel. Uh, they sponsored an emergency uh, solidarity mission that was made up of uh, rabbis. There were some lay leaders from Fuchsburg. Uh, we arrived on Monday morning at 6.30 to a very, very empty Ben-Gurion, like I've never seen it before. Uh, we traveled down south and uh, sort of hit a couple spots down there, which we'll come back to. I think the first day, if you're kind of asking about the the the... the scope of the journey we went and really experienced some of the some of the the, the pain and and uh, destruction that uh, happened down south and then the second day we sort of heard from israelis about some of their experiences and the third day was sort of looking at the civilian response and some of the resilience and some of the uh, solidarity that uh, that that is sort of really part of the narrative right now great and Cantor Schwartz, want to outline your trip a little bit so, so my trip was, uh, hi everyone. My trip was, um, private, I guess. Um, I went because my wife told me I have to go. And, uh, with all seriousness, she said, you have to lead by example. You have to be with your family and your friends in a, in a, in a time like that. So it was very spontaneous and, and I had no agenda going to Israel. But then very, very quickly, um, after hugging family and, um, visiting some, some of my uh, cousins and, and, and brother-in-law who's been called up, um, the agenda was pretty full and it was ranging from giving a full length concert in Tel Aviv for, uh, uh, people who were evacuated from their homes to giving a concert in a hospital to sing for people in a hotel where they, they, they're away from their homes. And then, uh, visiting dozens of, uh, wounded soldiers in Yerushalayim, in Tel Aviv, in Ranana, in Ashkelon, in Be'er Sheva. Um, and, uh, um, and I also had a few hours to volunteer, uh, picking up grapefruit in, uh, uh, near, near in the south, uh, where, you know, there are no people to work in the fields and, uh, Israelis are worried about a food crisis. 
Um, so um, it was very, very intense, um, but also very spontaneous. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to ask the question that's on everybody's mind, Rabbi Zuckerman. How's Jacob? Uh, he's better than his father. Uh, <laughs> he, um, I managed to see him the first day we were down south. I think we were about 10 kilometers from the Gaza border. I don't think Allison knew that when I left that we were going to be down there. But um, uh, And as it turns out, we were in Ofakim, uh, and um, Jacob uh, was supposed to be heading back up north that day, but uh, in a wonderful Israeli story, the guy who was picking up his unit got a flat tire, so he was running late. So I managed to be able to jump in a cab and go over to where he was staying at, in a town where they were taking over the school, uh, his unit, and uh, spent about 15 minutes with him. And um, I have pictures if anybody wants to see. Um, I, can't, I can't post them, but, um, but he's, uh, you know, as I tell people... Um, you know, I ask him how he's doing. He's doing fine. He's focused. He says he's in a great unit with a great bunch of guys. They know what their mission is. And beyond that, um, I don't need to get inside of his head. He's got a job to do and um, he needs to, you know, maintain that focus. So he's and, doing, and just, doing just for the maybe one person who might be online who might not know who Jacob is. So Jacob is my son who made Aliyah four years ago and spent three years of active duty in, uh, in Shiryon in tanks. And uh, got out of the army a year ago, and then went to spend a year at IDC, where he's in college in Herzliya, and like three hundred and forty-nine thousand, you know, nine hundred ninety-nine other Israelis. He was called up uh, after he was called up on the day of October seventh, and headed back October eighth, and was with his unit the next day, and he's been with them since uh, since October eighth. Great. Well, we all. Hope for the best. Thank you. Wish Thank for you. the best. Cantor Schwartz, do you want to share one or two stories that you want to bear witness to or want us to bear witness to here? Sure. I mean, the, the first welcome, uh, when I got to Tel Aviv was a siren, of course, and, and going into a shelter. And my nephew, who is, um, eight years old, is asking me, Azzy, where's the shelter in your building in New York? And just, just think about that. And, and his mom had to explain to him, well, Israel is the only place where there are rockets all the time. That's not the case in any other place in the world. And it took him a few minutes to really believe that, that there is no shelter in my apartment in New York. And, and, um, and, and speaking about Siren, it's another story. I was visiting some uh, relatives in the South and um, I'm driving the highway and there's that app that tells you that there is a, there's a siren. Do you have to take cover in the middle of the highway? So everybody pulls uh, up and, and getting out of their car. And there's a car ne right next to me with a young couple and a baby. And I found a little ditch right at the side of the road. And, and, I, and I yell to them, come, come over here, come over here. And... Um, the, the, the mother is just sheltering her, her baby and I'm right next to them. And then the father grabs my head and bring me close and he jumps all over the three of us. And of course, we can see the, the explosion up in the air and, and, and the, the, the noise and the, the vibration of it. It's very, very close. And a minute later, this guy gets up and I'm looking at him like, what was that supposed to mean? And he gives me a hug and he walks away. 
I have no idea who that person is. Um, and there is one more story. Um, after a after a concert in a in a in a ballroom in a hotel for some of the evacuees, um, I noticed that there's something in the in the corner of the room. There's a table that is covered, and there is a little child sitting under the table with his mom. So, you know, people left the ballroom and I go and I sit next to that table and I start singing Israeli song and it's a, it's a five-year-old. So I have a five-year-old at all home. So I kind of know the, the little tricks of, of that age. And after a few songs, I ask, is it okay for me to come in? And the child says, yes. And the mother gets out and I tell her, go get some coffee, get some air. And she says, but I don't know who you are. I said, it's okay. I got this. And she goes, she walks away. And, you know, this child would not look at me and would not talk to me, but we were singing together and coloring uh, in the coloring book. And after a few minutes, I said, I wonder what's in the lobby. And, and, you know, there's a little crocodile on our drawing and maybe the crocodile wants to see what's going on there. And he comes with me to the lobby for two minutes. Um, and the mom is shocked. And she said, you know, you know that this kid didn't leave this table for under this table for a for few days now. And then he walks back there. And, and again, the, this is a child from one of the kibbutzim that actually were able to survive with no harm because they had a very good um, preparation. Um, you, you you realize how traumatized uh, everyone is. Wow. Rabbi Zuckerman. Wow, Catherine. So, um, I really didn't know much about what we were going to be doing when when we got there. The itinerary was loose. It uh, didn't really matter what we were doing, actually. And um, so after that first day, I I, I broke off for in the morning to, you know, just go see my son for 15 minutes. And then the cat, you know, the cab driver waited for me. And then he drove me to where we were meeting the, the bus because we were going, um, into the Gaza envelope. Um, and, uh, you know, I got, I got in the cab, we drive, we find this junction, but uh, there was a, there was a security check there and they wouldn't let us through because only army uh, vehicles and people who live there were allowed into the this area of God, what they're calling the Gaza envelope. And uh, so they, you know, I texted our people, they sent back a military vehicle to get me and then um, we, I get there and they, they're handing us vests and helmets to go where we're going. And, um, you know, and I, they have like, a you know, a, uh, army vehicle behind us, like a gunner truck behind us and in front of us. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what, what, what am I doing here? Right. Like where, like, I, I, you know, I didn't feel they would take us someplace unsafe, but it wasn't clear to me why we were going where we're going, which was to Kibbutz Be'eri, which is one of the kibbutzim that was attacked and a large number of people were killed and taken hostage. We're actually going to hear uh, from someone tonight whose sister uh, is being held hostage. But um, we get there and, you know, we're walking through the kibbutz and the place is teeming with Israeli soldiers. And I think there was like a moment of levity where I'm like looking at these guys who are kind of laughing at us, 
you know, these Americans who are wearing helmets and vests, and they're just kind of lounging around. Um, but uh, the reason we went was because they wanted to take us to see some of the sites of destruction. It was very deliberate. And they took us into homes that were blown out and destroyed. And there were dried um, pools of blood with knives still there. And the, 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 the soldiers who were taking us through, who were 19, 20, their job is to go through these homes and to find bodies. And when they can't find the bodies, because those bodies had been incinerated, they would find pieces of bones. And he points to a large pool of dried blood, and he says there was a woman who was murdered there. I'm sorry for being graphic, but this is what we were tasked to do. She was murdered, she was mutilated, and then she was set on fire. You're here because you need to tell this story. And then he took out, you know, towards the end, he went on to a couple other you know, buildings, all the same stories. And then he takes out a, a, a binder, you know, and he starts showing us pictures of people who were murdered. And he said, this is your responsibility. You need to go back to your communities and you need to tell people what happened. And that's why we went there. We were there to be witnesses, right? And I, the theme of the trip for us was Achdus and Edus, right? Like, to be in solidarity with the Jewish people and to witness what had happened. And as far as I know, we were the only group, you know, amazing act, you know, to the Kufberg managed to get us down there. Um, there were a lot of rabbinic groups on the ground that didn't go down there. And I, 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 I said this in, in the email to the community, I saw things I will never forget. I teach these things. I teach about crusades and pogroms as something that happened, you know, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. And it's happened in Israel where it wasn't supposed to happen. And, and of all the things that we talk about in this war and in the hostage crisis, we can't forget what happened on October 7th. Our people were murdered. They were mutilated. They were set on fire. It's devastating. That same night, you know, just to really, you know, make the point, um, they took us to an army base on the way to Jerusalem called Shura. Shura is a base that has, I, I, I think there's a rabbinic command is there. Um, they have on base a gigantic morgue. And any, any soldier that is killed in combat is taken to Shura to be identified because oftentimes soldiers are in bad shape, especially on October 7th. In this case, all the civilians from October 7th came there as well because they do DNA, DNA identification, all kinds of things that are happening there, including the, you know, the purification, the tahara of the bodies. And it's this giant morgue. And there are guys in Miluim in reserve duty who are 40, 50 years old, including somebody named uh, Colonel Schwartz, Ozzy's brother, 
who um, I, I saw but and, and spoke to us, although I didn't know at the time he was your brother. And it's just devastating. Just devastating. And um, the, the, the uplifting moment was, as we're leaving there, right, as we're finishing, these guys' phones start to light up. And that was the moment at night when the female hostage was freed. It was Monday night. And it was in this place of immense darkness. It was just, and you could see, I mean, all of our faces, but especially the soldiers, um, just like a... I just want, do you want to share any other stories? Maybe when you went to visit the the video that we saw, the, the soldier in the hospital. So, yeah. So, as, as I said, I, I, I visited a lot of soldiers. Um, Sometimes um, um, they were expecting me and sometimes they were not. Um, and uh, most of the soldiers that I visited were soldiers who who heroically just went in the first day on October 7th and that, that the following night uh, to try to help to lend a hand and to uh, to fight the terrorists to to release the people um, of these kibbutzim and, and in Sderot as well. Um, that particular soldier, um, uh, someone in a previous visit realized that um, that they like uh, Kintorian music. And that person asked, how come you like Kintorian music? This is a thing for old people. No, no offense. <laughs> but... Um, he says, "Yeah, you know, there's there's that guy that I watch on YouTube, and I so, and then I get a text message, go visit that soldier, and I walk in, and he was really really surprised, and um, his story is fascinating. He was um, he was in combat trying to um, the the he, his friend was right in front of him, and he was trying to reach to help him when he got hit, and then he lost his hand." Um, and uh, it, it was hours until they were rescued. Um, and um, I said to him what I said to many soldiers. I said, um, your job is to get better and get out of this hospital. And then you're, uh, you're going to be my guest and we're going to hit the best nightclubs in New York City. And, and his dad calls me the next morning saying, you have no idea. My son wouldn't stop talking about New York. And and you've given him some something to look forward to because they are so devastated. They're, they're, there is nothing good. There's nothing good about this war. There's no plan. There's no vision. There's no leadership. There's no hope. It's really, really bad. Can, can I share an uplifting story? Please. So... Um, so, uh, you know, like all good things, you know, information is gleaned and, and good stories come from taking cab rides in Israel. And uh, I jumped in a cab. I was going someplace and, um, you know, the cab driver, say he was in his 50, 60 something um, Israeli guy asked me where I was from. I tell him I'm from New York. He's like, why are you here? Right. And I said, well, I'm part of a rabbinic, you know, trip and we're here to, you know, to see what's happening and be supportive, et cetera. And then I also have a son who's in the army. And he's, oh, you know, just in the army. I said, yeah, he's a chayal bodeh, he's a lone soldier. I said, yes, yes, yes. He goes, well, I, you know, 
I actually take care of a lone soldier. You know, a lot of Israelis, like, I mean, I could, my son could spend the rest of the year eating dinner at people's homes who want to take care of him, right? And um, so he's like, yeah, you know, I take care of this lone soldier. I adopted him, et cetera. And he's like, if me, where's your son? I said, well, now he's in the north. He's like, oh, my, Elijah's in the north. Let me call him, you know? So he gets this guy on the phone, and he's talking, oh, you know, Eli, Eli, how are you doing? And he's food. And he's like, oh, I've got someone in my cab whose son is in the north, and now please speak to him, you know? And I'm like, hey, you know, nice to meet you. And then he's like, yeah, you know, well, things are quieter in the north, and I think everything's okay, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was just this great moment, like only in Israel. And of course, the guy gives me a card and he said, if your son needs anything, right, I will drive dinner up to him. I'll take him clean socks, you know, whatever your son needs. And it, it's just, you, you know, amidst all the doom and gloom, Cantor, that you're talking about are human beings who are coming together and in unbelievable ways and support one another. Um, in, 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 in ways that will just both break your heart and give you hope, right? You know, Rabbi, you, you said that everywhere you, you travel, we, we were talking about this. Um, there is that slogan, Yachad Nenatzeach, or Yachad Nenatzeach, or Yachad Menatzchim, which means together we will win. And it, it's really inspiring to see how people are coming together uh, even Israelis organizing themselves. You know, my, on my third trip, uh, day of the trip, I, I had something that never happened to me in Israel. I got someone is, te is texting me an Excel spreadsheet that doesn't exist in Israel with names of soldiers, what rooms they are, who visited them last. Um, it, people really organize themselves and support each other. Everyone is in it. Everyone's trying to help in any way they can. Uh, I said that I was going to pick up some uh, grapefruit. Um, it, it's unbelievable. It's 7 a.m. in the morning. You get a text message the night before. They tell you who you're going to work with, who's the name of the, who's the owner of that uh, field, um, how to get there. Um, and, and I show up at 7 a.m. in the morning in a field and I thought, who said there was no one there? And then I, 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 I approach with, with the, the car that I rented and, and I see 30 cars parked quietly inside the orchard. And there are some older ladies from Tel Aviv who came to work in the fields. Mm -hmm. And in three hours, quietly, it's all done. And people hug each other. They support each other. It's it's really really inspiring. Yeah, I just I mean, want to just I just want to just to set the context yeah, of what the cantor's yeah. talking about. You know, you've got all of the agriculture that needs to be harvested, and there's nobody to harvest it. So what happens? You've got a volunteer army who's trying to pick fruit and vegetables that needs to be harvested. You know, 80% of Israel's vegetables are coming from the South. Correct. And, and, and it gets, I mean, there was one day in, in the cafeteria in one of the hospitals, someone invites me to, to have a falafel and there's no salad. It's like not having ketchup here when you go, <laughs> when you go get some food, right? It, it, it's really bad. There's a real crisis. Right. And, and actually, Rabbi Zuckerman, you told me that you met with an organizer who had been organizing the protest. That, that was a pivot for yeah, them, right? So, so um, 
It's called the Jerusalem Civilian Command Center, um, onelevjlm.org. We'll talk about this tomorrow as well, and we're going to put it up on the website. You know, the, the, the protest movement was basically living on WhatsApp. And, you know, that's a lot of the ways that people are organized. And once October 7th happened, the, the protest movement, remember, these are hundreds of thousands of people coming out for protest, immediately pivoted, recognized you can't be protesting when there's a war on. And as the cantor said, the, the, the civil society comes together, they immediately pivot. And at least in Jerusalem, I know there's one in Tel Aviv, they create this Jerusalem Civilian Command Center. It's at the uh, theater school right by Beidam, right? In fact, right where, you know, um, uh, Eichmann was put on trial, as a matter of fact. It's that complex. They took over a theater school and a theater, and there is like an Amazon distribution center happening around the clock, you know, that is providing food, clothing, toiletries. Initially, it was set up like 80% soldiers, 20% evacuees. That equation is basically flipped now as the army gets its bearings and, you know, people have things they need. But now it is this massive civilian lift filling the void where the government wasn't happening by the same people who were protesting are now, you know, and they need they need supplies, they need money. I mean, it's an unbelievable place and an unbelievable effort that's happening. And it's all civilian-led. The other thing that you mentioned to me also was that you said you noticed, um, talking about that there's no one to pick the fruit, but also you said that the absence of men, like yeah. all the men are in the army. And yeah. you said it was like, you, you said to me, it was like World War II must have been like here, where the women are here and the men are Right. I mean, the, the difference is in Israel, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, ultra, so you see men, but if you see, uh, you, you don't see a lot of, you know, you, uh, imagine the Cantor and I in our between 20 and 40 or 18 and 40, you don't see a lot of people who look like us walking around Jerusalem or other places because everybody's been called up. You've got 350,000 soldiers mobilized. So it's a little eerie walking around and not seeing the population you're used to see. Or I'll, I'll give you one example of it. There's a bookstore in Jerusalem called Pomerantz. It's right, down, it's right by Ben Yehuda. I've been, you know, I've been going there for years and I walk in and the, in, an older woman was working the store. Um, it's the, it's the wife of the man who founded the store who sadly passed away recently. Her two sons took over the place. They're not there. Why? Because they're with their units. So she steps up and is running this bookstore all over Jerusalem. You know, and I suspect Israel, you've got situations like this because people have been called up. Kanter Schwartz, you mentioned to me there were a couple of themes that you sort of came back with. Do you want to share what those themes are? Yeah, so I think we, we did talk about the war everywhere. You, you really can't hide from it. Everyone is in it. That's one theme. The other theme that we talked about was the devastation, the trauma, the long-term effect that these, these events um, are going to have on, on Israelis. You know, my, my sister, you mentioned my brother, um, I have a few siblings, but but it's my younger brother and one of my um, older sisters uh, who are really involved in this. Um, she's the head of psychiatry in Ichilov in Tel Aviv. And the stories and the, the, the idea that weeks later, there are these kids who were partying and have seen what they have seen. And now they're coming in, they're being hospitalized because they realize that they're not right and, um, and they need help. Um, 
it's going to have a, it's going to take a long time to restore a basic sense of personal safety, right? People are carrying water and food with them everywhere. Um, it's going to take a while. But the other thing that we didn't talk about, and we also, of course, talked about the theme of people coming together and, and, and supporting each other, is I was really surprised to see um, the relationship between Jews in the diaspora, you, us, and Jews in Israel. A connection that was kind of fragile for quite some time. And there are huge signs in, in Jerusalem saying thank you with the, with the face of Joe Biden, President Biden, right? Um, there are, uh, so many people who in Israel who now see American Jewry and are grateful and they're aware of the work that you are doing here, that we are doing here. And they appreciate, they realize they cannot win this war alone. And likewise, I was overwhelmed receiving so many messages from people from our community that it was so meaningful to them to know that I was in Israel. And I, I have to be honest, I did not expect that. That was a private trip. I went to see my family. I know that we're all concerned here, but um, I've never realized the power of, of really understanding that we, we, we share a common fate, we share a common mission and responsibility now. And I hope that this will continue. You know, Cantor, you said something. I just want to put an exclamation point on it. When we were at Hadassah Hospital, um, they were talking about some of the mental health challenges, and they were saying that there's a real shortage of social workers in Israel. That's what I didn't know about. And um, just uh, you know, the the it, it, it it's going to when when you know I'm thinking about you know um, my cousin sent me a message that there that there was a young man who who died. Uh, was killed up north. He was a soldier. He was in my son's. He was in my son's sort of group that entered Israel, and um, they were in IDC together. And 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 he went to the funeral. And my my cousin said, you know, he'll cry later, right? He's got work to do, and that later is going to come. And it's concerning to hear that there might not be the 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 sort of scaffolding to support what the mental health needs will be. Um, and that's just something for us to, to keep in mind and to, to the, about Israelis, to a person we met with, the gratitude they expressed that we were there was unbelievable, that we came, that we stood with them, right? Because remember, there's a feeling even here of loneliness, of isolation, and that we picked up and we came. Every Israeli that we spoke to or spoke to us was deeply moved by our presence. Um, the, the one thing we haven't mentioned is the hostages, really. And um, this is a huge issue. Uh, we met with um, Rachel Goldberg and, and, and Jonathan Poland, whose son Hirsch is one of the 250, I don't know, I keep seeing a different number, but um, I'm going to speak about this a little more tomorrow, but uh, just the... The, the trauma there, right? And the need to keep this in the, in the news cycle, I think is important. And I immediately, you know, and, and they're right. And there was more to say about this. And you can imagine in a country, uh, the size of Israel, 
the interconnectivity of these families. And everybody knows somebody who's, who has a family member um, somewhere in Gaza, which we don't know about. And we don't know whether they've had any medical treatment. We know that, that Hamas has not let in, you know, Doctors Without Borders or Red Cross. Um, so there's work to do for us to keep this in the forefront. Uh, I'm going to share a website tomorrow that was set up that makes it very easy because there's, there's, there, there, you know, it's a global humanitarian crisis. Remember, there are 33 countries represented amongst the hostages, including Americans. And uh, they set up a website that makes it very easy to contact our elected officials. And there's a script, what we can say, and we need to be flooding uh, our elected officials with phone calls to, to make sure that this uh, story stays front and center. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do. And I, you know, I immediately texted Rabbi Cosgrove. I said, we're not, we're, we're just, you know, we're not talking enough about this, right? We're talking about Israel. We're talking about the war. We're talking about anti-Semitism. We need to be speaking about the hostages. This needs to be front and center in our minds. There are over 250 or so people who are being held in Gaza with no clear path to, to be released. Um, I want to give you all a chance to ask some questions. Patricia has got a mic here. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. So glad both of you are back and back safe. But, um, Cantor, I think you said there was no hope. And I've never heard that before. And I want to know why you feel that way and how, if anything, we all can do to change that for you and for everybody there. Yeah, I know these are really harsh words. And, but, but again, from listening to the radio, from, from talking to people, from feeling it in Israel on the ground, that's the feeling. Um, you know, th this is very different from a conventional war that you know that your army is strong and you're going to win this, and then this war is going to enable you to make peace agreements, right? Uh, of course, we have to think about Yom Kippur a little bit, and, and because, again, trauma goes in cycles, and, and, and the, the nerve that it hits. Here, this war is impossible. The hostages, you're fighting a terror organization under tunnels. What's... What's the goal of this war? How is it going to end? Nobody knows. It's, it's an impossible war to win. And then what? And Israel feels so isolated. And, and you, you can read the news and see what's going on. And people feel it over there. Um, it, it's, this is really the feeling. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Yes, there, there is from the ground up. There are lots of forces of people who are responding, and that is, it's warming your hearts. And yes, the relationship with American Jewry and, and otherwise, but it's a it's a very desperate situation. What's going to happen the day after? How? When is this war going to end? What's going to happen the day after? Nobody. And again, I, I need to stress that too. Leadership, as you know, before this war, the country was so torn politically. The feeling that, you know, we don't have a leader that everybody or there is a wide consensus, a leadership that the people trust. It's very broken right now. 
Um, I just uh, wanted to thank you guys. I actually live in Jerusalem and I'm here because uh, I'm part of the fundraising team for the Jerusalem Civilian Command Center. So I'll be here, Hal Sabat. So if anyone is interested in getting involved or learning more, you can talk to me. But mostly I just want to say, Ozzy, uh, Daniel Gordis has a book that's called uh, Impossible Takes Longer. And I think that's the... Um, Right. Uh, at least my sense living there is, yes, it is impossible and we have no choice except to win. So, Right, of course, there is no choice and everybody's doing the, all the right things that they should be doing. But these are horrible outcomes and horrible choices that Israel is facing right now. Yeah, I would just add while we're lining up the next question that there is certainly an undercurrent in Israel right now, although people are putting political differences aside to um, to come together, that that it's still there. The, the only thing I would I would add to what the Cantor's saying is that, with all of that said, the morale of the army is actually very high right now, right? Like these soldiers believe in their mission, right? They believe that this is a just and moral war, and there is a lot of moral clarity on this issue. So, okay. we have a question here. Thank you. And thank you for asking that first question, by the way. Um, along those lines, and as the rabbi was just talking, I think of one of my grandnephews who is, you just described him exactly, and he's somewhere in the north. Um, I'm wondering if either of you spoke with anybody a little bit and along the lines of hopefulness or not or despair, but where they talked about what they envision years from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, and even if they didn't, when, when they're approached that way, can you see in their face like, well, I can't imagine the next seven years, but I can imagine the next 15 or something? It, 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 a lot of Israelis are talking about changing the status quo right now, changing the situation, because the situation is horrible. I mean, people are not safe and, you know, this whole Iron Dome business, right? It's like you, you need to get into a reality, into a routine that you live on, you're under fire. And, um, of course, the goals right now is to be together and to, and to get rid of Hamas and, and restore the, the, the peace, right? And, but, and rebuild those communities. But there is the reality. Uh, there is a very, very, Difficult reality we're dealing with. So a lot of Israelis are saying, look, the most we're going to get here is five more years of quiet. To what extent uh, do the Israelis feel that the internal friction, political, that was going on for so many months uh, led to this, uh, that the uh, Hamas picked this as a propitious time to uh, begin the problem? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it depends who you're asking that question to, um, uh, you, you know, but you'll and you'll read both sides of this, that uh, the infighting and led to unpreparedness. I, I'm not an expert in in army preparedness and I'm, you know, I'm also not an expert on Israeli society. I, I find it, you know, just as a human being that it would be uh, un, hard to believe that, you know, the. The, the 10 months of infighting didn't, you know, didn't have some effect. But with that said, right, I mean, as of October 7th, that turned on a dime, 
right? And, and, and those political differences were suspended. I'm not saying they're gone, but they were suspended, um, while, uh, you know, while the country comes together. But I mean, I feel like whoever I speak to on the right or the left, there seems to be some unanimous view that the current prime minister doesn't survive this when all said and done, right? That I will, but I'm not a political prognosticator, but that seems to be the consensus to me uh, in Israel, that the people are let down. So a question here, and then there's going to be one there, and that might be all we have time for. Yeah. Hi, Um, I'm a second generation Holocaust survivor, and um, I know that generational trauma is very, very real and prevalent something that I've worked on and my siblings have worked on for primarily our entire lives and my mother and my father. Um, I'm curious, as you've said, trauma right now is extremely prevalent for everybody in Israel and the Jewish civilians that are watching what's happening right now. Cantor, your sister is a psychiatrist. I am working in psychology. I'm curious if you've spoken to her how the toll of many, many Israelis who are suffer, who have suffered from generational trauma as they are many, many Holocaust survivors living and have perished now in Israel. What is your take on how this newfound trauma may now affect the prior and previous trauma that is already built into our DNA? So, so look, you'll have to ask my sister uh, because she's the expert mm-hmm. and I'm sure she'll be happy to talk to you um, when she has a minute. Um, but again, as we said, there is a, there is a nerve here that is being um, for all of us, right? That never again, they've seen these horrors, right? Um, but it's very, very clear. We're not at the post-drama yet. And right now, also the, the professionals are trying to deal with something that is very immediate to give people a sense. My sister mentioned, everybody who comes to the hospital, hi, you're in a safe place. Today is Friday, the date, the time, right? To give them a sense of you're in a safe place right now. There's no question that the the the, the long effects of that are going to continue for many, many years. And Israel is lacking the infrastructure and hopefully it will have to deal with it. So I want to just give a counterpoint to that, uh, to this question of trauma, because it's a real question. There is trauma in Israel, you know, long before October 7th happened. Um, this week, uh, Dan Sinor and Saul Singer have a new book coming out called The Genius of Israel. It's a follow-up to their book, Startup Nation. And the book is trying to make, trying to understand why Israel, for example, given the trauma that you mentioned and given the trauma that we know is real and given the fact that they live in a very very hostile neighborhood, um, still ranks incredibly high on indexes of happiness. Uh, still, uh, you know, you don't see actually the mental health issues in Israel that you see in other developed nations. You see a higher birth rate in Israel than any other developed country. And the question is why? Uh, what? And the case they're making, and I'm halfway through the book, um, but believe me, there'll be a lot of rabbi sermons about this, is that built into society are shock absorbers that actually allow Israel to not just survive, but to thrive. And to some, now maybe they're masking the trauma, but, but in, in a lot of measures, Israel seems to be outperforming 
the fact, given the fact that there is real trauma. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be a huge book um, that is coming out, not by any design, at exactly the right time. So November 7th, this book comes out, buy it, read it, and you, you'll have a better understanding, I think, about some of these issues. And we just have time for one last question. Thanks. Is uh, Practically speaking, is there a plan to put together an emergency mission from the synagogue to go to Israel? Yes, there and, is. So, and before on... you answer that, also, uh, there's obviously many non-Jews who live in Israel. Is there a palpable tension that you can feel between the Jews and the non-Jews, whatever their position in life may be? Absolutely. I mean, you need to go no further than Hadassah Hospital, where more than half of the patients and the staff are not not Jewish. And it's a very delicate um, uh, tapestry, right? And and is that the right word? Yeah. Um, and and um, and a lot of it is is really hanging, you know, in a very very unknown and fragile state at the moment. There was one particular doctor who was alleged for sharing something on Instagram that was related to Hamas and was immediately suspended. But then the administration said, "Wait a second, we need to investigate this, and it's not really true." And you understand how this is really just this. It, it shakes that that uh, reality. A lot of Israeli Arabs are not supporting of Hamas. They would, in a million years, want to be under Hamas territory or, or ruling, right? They, they support Israel. They want to be part of Israel. Uh, there are lots of uh, communities that serve in the IDF, the, 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 uh, the, the Bedouin community, the Druze community, mm-hmm. right? The, the, it's, it's, it's definitely an issue that people talk about. So I want to thank Rabbi Zuckerman and Cantor Schwartz for sharing their insights. And, and, and to thank all of you for your continued interest and support and caring. Um, it's what makes this community beautiful and such a privilege to be part of. Thank you all. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah, Bekur Shul. Hallelujah.